Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen. I am your host, Joshua Tracy. And I am your host, Corbin Heller. And uh, it is it is January 3rd as we're recording this. And um, it might not seem it, but Oscar season is right around the corner. Um, we've got a couple movies to talk about today that are wholly unrelated from the Oscars. But we're going to start and try to get an early jump on Oscar season um, as we talk about the movies that are likely to be nominated and then over the course of time the films that are for certain nominated um, to make sure that we are ahead of the curve and have plenty of room and time to talk about the movies in the big categories that we are expecting to get a lot of conversation around in the movie watching circles as well as a few of the categories that interest us most in particular. Um, so we're going to start that today um, when we make our movie picks later on in the show uh, and it'll ramp up and we'll make more and more picks uh, that should be uh, of, of more and more picks of films that should be nominated for Oscars as the date gets closer the Oscars are April 25th so we have a good 15 episodes ish between now and then to talk about the movies that we want to get through luckily a lot of overlapping films in across categories so we should be able to get through a whole bunch of them but look, at, keep an eye out for more and more Oscars picks or Oscar um, expected Oscars picks coming from us as the weeks go on and the months go on leading into the big day itself. We're very excited about it and uh, we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for today, we still have our two regular, regular picks. Uh, we are talking today about the. Uh, 2012 film The Master and the 1996 film Fargo. Uh, Corwin, do you have any place you'd like to start today? Nope. All right. Let's start with Fargo then. Um, okay. That was my pick, so let's get some info on it. Fargo came out in 1996, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars William H. Macy, Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi, um, as well as, uh, what's his fucking name? Um, the scary uh, looking dude. Stormare. Peter Stormare. Yeah, yeah, Peter Stormare. I always forget his fucking name. I always want to say he's one of the, um, the Skarsgård brothers, but he's not. Uh, no, I get what you mean. Yeah, I know. Uh, budget of $7 million. Really? $7 million? That's it? Wow, that's crazy. Um, and it a cumulative worldwide gross of $60 million, so that's a success. It's a tidy little uh, ROI there. Um, its tagline is small town, big crime, dead cold. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> sure. sure. It makes sense. Sure. I mean, it works. Um, it won two Oscars on the back of... Um, uh, four, six, seven nominations. It won for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Frances McDormand, Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen for Ethan and Joel Cohen. It was also nominated for Best Picture for Ethan Cohen, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for William H. Macy, Best Director for Joel Cohen, Best Cinematography for our boy, Roger Deakins, and Best Film Editing for Ethan and Joel Cohen as Roderick James for, for the Uninitiated 
Um, the Coen brothers often edit their films together under one single name because the best film editing category used to be solo entries only. Um, so they came up with the pen name of Roderick Janes to be the person that, <laughs> that received the Oscar nominations. Um, so there's that. Anyway, <laughs> um, the film itself is about uh, Jerry Lundegaard and his inept crime, which falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. Uh, this was my pick, so I will start. Um, this film is so incredibly um, it is so serious. in the subject matter ends up actually happening. And we're going to talk about it a lot because it's, it's one of the things that I wrote down a lot. About as we go through the film is that B is given and what the mistakes are that these people end up making along the way. And that in classic Coen Brothers dialogue that you get in here, um, ev everything that you could possibly, the great acting made movie, in addition to the fact that it's a great story too. This isn't just good filmmaking, even if this could have been this movie could have gotten away with being a lot worse and still being watchable because of how captivating the and you add on top of it the everything surrounding the actual story it's just such such a well put together film um I but it definitely with it. Um, I don't know if it's the biggest film for adapting or you know popularizing Minnesota accents, but it definitely was the biggest for me. Um, man, it's just a it's a fun movie. It's incredibly funny. It's incredibly tense. It is almost a horror film if you wanted to reshoot this uh, with roughly the same storyline. Um, but again, the yeah. Coen brothers knocked this out of the park with how well it was performed and executed. Um, and just the, I, I don't want to call it a twist because I don't think it would necessarily classify, but oh my God, just the, the way this ending comes about is phenomenal and I just love it. I, I, I know I'm so excited to get into this. So I, I, guess let's get started um so the film does the thing that i love when movies do and you'll hear this as being a constant point of praise for me it gets right fucking into it uh we start off right away with um the the plot the conspiracy to kidnap um what's what's jerry lundegaard's wife's name um, god character Jerry's. names Jerry Lundegaard, Gene, Gene, Gene. Lundegaard. Yeah. Oh, hey, Gene. Uh, 
Oh, hey, Gene. Uh, oh, not so bad. Uh, any <laughs> good you? <laughs> oh, Rain, how are you now? Um, gets right into it. So you know, you get William H Macy who goes to a seedy-ish looking bar to meet Bashemi and um, Stormare, aka Carl Showalter and Gaier Grimsrud, whatever the fuck. Um, and this is the only time I believe that these three people are all in the same room together. And the the for the entire rest of this film, um, and it's a point that I don't think I've ever really focused on before this viewing, which is also a thing I feel like I say all the time, is that because in order to make this look convincing, after this encounter, there's no reasonable way they're ever going to be able to talk again, because every time post kidnapping that Steve Buscemi or Peter Stormare, well, really just Buscemi call the house to negotiate the terms of the um, ransom, you're going to have to assume you're being listened to. Even if William H. Macy manages to successfully convince everybody else to not get the police involved, you still have to assume you're going to be listened to. And so they have to, it's fucked up going forward. Um, that to the side for a moment, just to finish out this little thing before I, I turn it over to you. I also love the fact her on Jerry to come up with the money is all that I really care about. And I found it very effective. It's not a typical MacGuffin where it doesn't really... Yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter why it exists. It's just that it exists. You know, it's doesn't matter the figure it doesn't matter the purpose it doesn't matter the reason he got in the situation none of that matters if it's stated in the movie sure there's some exposition if it's not stated it really doesn't affect the story at all it's just that hey this fucking nobody this used car salesman new car salesman need cash and is willing to do some pretty insane stuff to get it and boy um gunderson is just quite the character and and his confidence and able to get this done um do you think that he would ever come close to this if his father-in-law wasn't such an asshole to him like do you think he would be in this situation regardless like do you think he would have put himself in a situation to get the off
if his yeah, I, I, father-in-law. You got to wonder how much of the need for this these dollars were to keep um, his father from noticing some other indiscretion that he had had, whether it be at the business that his father-in-law owns or um, something to do with his family. Who the fuck knows? Because um, that's one of the things that I love about it is that there's 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 a lot of ins, there's a lot of outs, there's a lot of what have yous. Um, to to quote another Coen Brothers film, uh, but um, and you, you there's that? a, huh? Which 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 movie is that from? Big Lebowski. Really? Yeah. Is that the dude saying it? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous. Uh, <laughs> I fucking love that movie. This transgression will not stand, man. Uh, anyway. Well, um, like that's just your opinion, man. Fucking love that movie. Um, it's all-time favorite. I, I and so Peter Stormare also in that. Um, the the fact that like the bank calls him, you know, and they're like, "Hey, you know, we just can't read these serial numbers for all that money we gave you that for as collateral. Can you just give us those serial numbers?" That it's such a great. And well scripted, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Plot device, because they don't give away what the money was for. What if if it was a loan? If it was a cash advance? If it was fucking anything? It doesn't matter. All they're calling about is we gave you money for whatever. You signed over collateral in the form of vehicles, and you didn't give us. And we just can't read the numbers. And it'd be very easy for for the the them to dance around that point and for it to feel you know feel like they were dancing around it or for it to even just feel somewhat less genuine and it does such a, does such a great job of being a very succinct call very focused on just this this one small point mm-hmm. um and establishing the need for whatever the hell Jerry was fucking up to Man, it's truly fascinating how little he seemed to think through this. Which, by all means, is how he ended up in this situation and in itself is a plot device. But you would think if you were going to hire kidnappers or a kidnappers who he originally hired to kidnap your wife and essentially like blackmail or extort money out of your father-in-law, that... you would have maybe thought through some of the the faults in your plan to begin with, but at the end of the day, you can't really have this movie if he did. I don't know. Well, I think that's part of the other thing that makes this movie so effective is that they tell you what's going to happen in terms of, you know, like this could have very easily been a, a movie where they reveal to you at the end in a twist that, it was orchestrated by Jerry Lundegaard the whole time. You know, this movie could have been from the captor's perspective um, and even shown Jerry being somewhat dodgy and then told you at the end, ah, I orchestrated it. No, this movie tells you that at the very fucking beginning. At the very beginning, because this movie is not even about that. It's about the fact that Jerry is a fucking idiot and, you know, gets pissy and gets... and, and. you can't coordinate shit, and the fact that the that the uh, the two dudes he hired are just as fucking dumb as he is, 
to the point where they killed how many people? They killed the they killed the cop. Oh, they killed no. those two dudes. Um, Steve Buscemi killed the dad. They killed the the ca- they killed the fucking hostage. Yeah. If they got the money, what the fuck were they gonna do? <laughs> like, uh, outrageously, nope. outrageously stupid. Who is? How would you rank, or not even rank, but like, who would you put in the only tier of like competent characters in this movie? Francis McDormand, number oh, one. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, end of list, I think. Yeah, like Norm. <laughs> But like Norm doesn't really do anything, so it's no. hard to even put him up there. No, he doesn't do anything. And and William he H Macy's a fuck up. He he, ma- he makes eggs. He makes some good eggs. Um, from what we're led to believe. Like you can't even put the father-in-law in there because he, you know, expressly goes against the wills of the captors of his daughter, and obviously that makes everything go bad. And gets talked out of calling the police, which is like the the first thing you're supposed to do. Right. Uh, yeah, it's Frances McDormand and everybody else, which, yeah. to be fair, is most of her movies. But this specific, she does movie, best. yeah, yeah, and I think that's what makes because what what's what, one of the things I think that also really works about this plot wise is that despite all of the fuck ups. It doesn't fall to pieces. There's still room for them to get away with things. You know? Even after Frances McDormand starts, to, you know, gets her nose on the trail of, of these clues, there's still room for these guys to get away with this. Mm-hmm. It's and it's that it's that their their infighting, their bickering, their fuck ups and mistakes slowly get them caught up to and allowing them room to one, like they get the money. Like, Steve Buscemi buries the money. They divide up the money at the cabin. They're all fucking good, you know? Like, like, like they, could, they could have gotten away, and then they fucked that up. And it's the fact that they keep giving you those that steady stream of mistakes and dumb shit combined with progress in their ultimate goal is another thing that makes this right. movie just work so effectively. Like, they're fucking up, but not necessarily affecting... It's basically just pushing the inevitable outcome down the line, but it's not blowing up in their face immediately. Like you see that in so many movies where it's a mistake and there's this huge, you know, cause and effect relationship that they now have to deal with and it's a new obstacle for them to overcome. That doesn't really happen because they just kind of, okay, well cause effect the effect isn't going to come until the very end we don't have to do anything about it just yet there are some little things but like majorly it just gets pushed to the end and that's why everything blows up there is no blowing up in their face you know halfway through the film little things nothing major right like william h macy not covering correctly the fact that that sienna was missing or sierra um like, if he had just built in a better... He could have said, yeah, I sold it to those guys. Oh, my God, those are the guys that kidnapped my wife? Like, oh. lie. Lie better. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're a car salesman. It's not a huge shock if you say, oh, yeah, I sold that car. It's also not a huge shock that he's a poor car salesman and a poor liar. Which is hilarious, because you think a used car salesman would be a good liar, but oh, well. Um... Also, so also on this rewatch, I, I, 
I thought Frances McDormand came in this movie way sooner than she did. I was like taken aback at how late she comes into this movie. What scenes are preceding her? The meeting with... Hmm. It's been so long since I've seen this. Now I'm forgetting the layout of the the first act. Oh, you didn't do Obviously, a rewatch like, since you... Have, uh... have the meeting with um, Ned Gunderson and the two hitmen. Yeah, so they so Jerry has the meeting with with with, with the kidnappers. Jerry has yeah. the meeting with his father-in-law about the estate deal. Right. Um Carl or um fucking uh Steve Buscemi and whatever his other guy's name is then kidnap Gene and then Marge <laughs> Gunderson um oh and sorry kidnaps Gene and has the whole shootout with the cop and kills those two guys that drive by all right. that shit and then um, then Marge Gunderson comes in after that. So, like, yeah. a lot goes by uh, before you end up getting um, the lead actress in this film. Huh. All right, yeah, you're right. That is a... Ooh, excuse me again. Um, that is a lot longer than I remember. And I would like to, to, to jerk off Francis McDormand for a hot moment, if I could. Do do? Because this is such an impressive performance from her. Um... Because this is, I venture to say, a very, very significant, if not almost the entire film falls on her shoulders. Because that fine line that this film kind of walks between being camp and being dead serious, she is the main kind of focus of that line. Because the Steve Buscemi and... Peter Stormare, however his name is pronounced, those scenes are usually pretty serious. They do goofy shit, but they themselves are not that goofy. Steve Buscemi gets worked up a lot, and that and that worked up energy can be kind of like funny in a slapstick way, but he's playing that pretty serious. William H. Macy is playing his role pretty goofy. Mm-hmm. Frances McDormand has to do both, because she is the cop that is investigating this triple homicide, um, and that in of itself is crazy fucking serious in addition to the fact that she's doing this while pregnant and navigating all these other things she's navigating but she's also fucking hilarious minnesota housewife yeah right yeah and 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 all the things that come with being the small time minnesota housewife you know like being a supportive uh wife when her husband's painting ducks like it's fucking hilarious her dialogue is is said with that very very polite minnesota accent you know mm-hmm. um and which plays really funny but at the same time you can tell you can tell she is being serious when she's saying it even though it's funny and that is hard to do because if she played that role straight funny i'm not sure the movie would work because how can you investigate a triple homicide as a pregnant person while being just hilarious it's not serious and it's the same thing that went through her scene with um whatever the guy she meets so uh, for dinner is the one who ended up having the mental problem um that she talks with uh, someone about later on in the right. in the film um like mike something y- y- yeah I've, something something, like something japanese um yeah. like she played that very serious in in both her conversation with mike Yama, y- Yanagita, Mike Yanagita, 
Um, and in the conversation she has about Mike Yannicki in a later scene. And that that's this character. She is funny in her mannerisms, but very sincere in them. And I'm not sure the film works without that. Uh, wholeheartedly agree. It's a very fine line that she dances beautifully. Yeah, she's just oh, she's just so perfect in this. Um, like even because like imagine imagine the end scene of this not the end scene but but the like the penultimate scene of this film where Francis McDormand comes upon Peter Stormare putting Steve Buscemi in a wood chipper and then shooting him in the leg. She oh, played that. God. She played that serious because that was that was serious. Um, imagine her playing that serious after playing the entire movie like a slapstick weirdo. It wouldn't be serious. It'd be impossible to be serious. It'd be weird. It wouldn't allow that freedom. Going too far one end of the spectrum consistently throughout the movie wouldn't allow her to come back and basically teeter totter. Uh, teeter totter. <laughs> oh. Uh, y- yes. Go back and forth the the rest of the movie, and her consistently going back and forth is what allows that freedom. Um, what words? What do you think? Tell me uh, about if you have any thoughts on the cinematography of this film. I think it's very Coen Brothers. I think being the kind of era where it came out and also taking place significantly it's not like this and it really just it it has a, almost a level of comfort to it that kind of draws you in and makes you feel at home you know it's a it's a sunday afternoon with fresh snowfall going out to the cabin lighting up a fire hanging out inside with a cup of coffee or a cup of hot cocoa like it lures you into this comfort level that minnesota provides um I don't necessarily know if that was the goal or intended outcome, but at the same time, it fits well for a movie where the tone is just so fittingly happy-go-lucky small town with just abrupt chaos just chalked up right into it. Yeah, I I think you're totally right. I think, like, when you watch the movie Seven, you've seen Seven, right, Brad Pitt? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. That film is shot dark. Yeah, like, like, like tonally in terms, like visually, it is dark. It is a dark. It's raining the whole movie. There is like one single uh, scene with with sunlight in it. Like everything else, it's fucking dark. And this film is a direct contrast to that in that it is very dark in subject matter, but because there's so much fucking snow, it's actually visually pretty bright. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the line that it was trying to play with. 
And even so, like even when they have interior shots, when they're in the cabin, when they're in the home and the offices, it's all brightly lit, you know? Yeah. The wood furnishings are all light wood. It's not darkening the scene in any discernible way. It's keeping it very bright all the time. It's a great detail. And it's beautiful to to see those, you know, really like painting like um shots from Deacons where he plays a lot with the the large open space of the uh, of the um snowy shots playing with uh, patterns and symmetry and geometry. Really wonderful shots. Um I love I've, Freaky Deaky man. When has he ever done wrong? Never. It's literally impossible. Um I actually have like a bunch more things I want to say, but at the same time, it's been like, it's it's been like a half an hour of the show. (laughs) Um, We should probably. All right. So the the only other thing I wanted to ask about is, is the Francis McDormand scenes in which she's not being a police officer and why you think those are in there. Because I don't know, but I love them. Like the scene we talked about where she meets up with Mike Yanagita. That didn't need to be in the movie. The scenes where she's, you know, telling Norm, you're doing a great job with the, with the duck painting. And you got in the three cent stamp. That's awesome. Um, or we were just talking about the eggs. None of those fucking matter at all to the plot, um, which is a big deviation for the rest of this film because outside of those scenes, every other scene is directly plot related. There's nothing William H. Macy does in this film that's not about furthering the plot. There's nothing that um, Steve Buscemi nor Peter Stomare do in this film that does anything other than further the plot. But Francis McDormand has scenes where she is not actively furthering the plot. And I love those scenes. And I'm not here to, to dig on them at all. I find them, even though they are completely irrelevant to the plot, I find them to be absolutely fascinating and engaging. And I'm so happy that they're there. I'm just wondering if you had any impression as to what they were there for. Uh, in my mind, it's just to highlight the fact that at the end of the day, this is such a important aspect for, uh, you know, half of the cast of this movie with you know william h macy like this is his entire life that's you know being like overtaken by this kidnapping and this effort and at the end of the day for you know francis mcdormand it's it's her job it's her nine to five you know she still has the same lifestyle of a small town minnesota woman that she would have if this wasn't going on you know she's still has a husband that is a painter and and is in this competition. She's still waking up early and having breakfast with him. She's still meeting up with old friends, you know, after work, after she's doing this investigation. And, you know, I don't know necessarily if that's the intended reasoning for why they would have these included, but I think it's just to highlight more of that small town, everyday woman type atmosphere that they're trying to show and emphasize that this still is just small town Minnesota. I love that explanation. And I now think I have, I'm going to expand upon it because now it's, it's given me an idea for why that's in there. Now I love that sure. explanation um, because this crime was so bad. She did this without putting much additional effort in. <laughs> she didn't need to be up late at night investigating evidence like in seven or in any of these other crimes, <laughs> like, she got it done by like three o'clock on like the third day investigating. <laughs> yeah, she didn't pull all nighters. 
she had the time. You're right. She had the time to go do all this shit because she didn't need to because this crime was very poorly put together. Oh my god, I fucking love that. Wait, that because that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like oh she god. literally happenstanced into every major plot point. Like she just wanders into the guy's office um, when she meets with William H Macy, and it's just like picks apart his entire, um, you know, uh, his entire plan, and it's just like. Where's these cars, guy? Oh, yeah, I don't by know. By asking a very rudimentary question, where's the cars? Yeah. <laughs> and same thing when she comes upon the house because they didn't hide the car <laughs> from the street. Yeah, she drives by on the street, not even really like digging around. It's just like, oh shit, there's a tan Sierra. There we go. That's it. We're done here. <laughs> wow, wow, this is great. I love this. <laughs> Oh my god. Cohen That's brothers, funny. you're a bunch of geniuses. So fucking good. Oh man. Alright, um then outside of that, I don't think I have any, anything else to, to say about it. Um do you have anything to say before we move to final ratings and reviews? Uh probably not. Alright. Um this is my pick. I am laying down the hammer. I'm giving this a five out of five. Um I do not know what more this film could be providing for you. It has a story that it moves through very efficiently while also having enough room in it to paint a really interesting picture of these characters' lives and their interpersonal relationships. Um, The dialogue is perfect. The cinematography is perfect. The acting is perfect. I literally don't know what more I could be asking out of this film. And I've seen this movie so many goddamn times, and it is still fucking fun. And engaging every single time. Um, and that rewatchability factor just tags it in for me. Um, I'm locking that shit in. Absolutely worth every rewatch I've ever given it. And you should too. Five out of five. I'm going to give it a four and a half. Um, it really just comes down to that X factor for me. It is a fantastic movie. I have no complaints. Um and we've had this discussion so many times in the past where, you know, a film that is differentiated between a four and a half and a five really isn't all that different other than that X factor, that little extra something that puts it over the top. And I don't know if it's because I am comparing this to the rest of the Coen brothers arsenal, which I I do seem to enjoy more. Or if it's just something else on top of it, I just can't commit to giving this a perfect five. So I'm going to give it a four and a half. Sounds good to me, buddy. Shall we move along to uh, to our next film? Yes. All right. And we're talking about The Master now from 2012. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin Phoenix, and Amy Adams. It had an estimated budget of $32 million. It had a cumulative worldwide gross of $28 million. So this is a theatrical flop of sorts. Um, it ha- Its tagline, does it exist? Oh, no, it doesn't. That's weird. All right, anyway. 
It was nominated for three Oscars. It was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Joaquin Phoenix, Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role for Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role for Amy Adams. Uh, the film is about a naval veteran who arrives home from war unsettled and uncertain of his future until he is tantalized by the cause and its charismatic leader. Corwin, this was your film. You get us started. Oh, boy. I had no idea what to expect going into this. Um, I knew it was about a quirky, culty religion, which I highlighted on last week when I mentioned it was about Scientology. Turns out it's not Scientology, but it's kind of close. Um, it is di- based directly off of um, L. Ron Hubbard. So, yeah. Fuck yeah. All right. I got it right, then I got it wrong, and now I'm right again. Um, but in reality, at the end of the day, this blew me away with just the acting performances by um, Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And just by how goddamn gorgeous this film was, the story itself was honestly captivating. And just the evolution of both Joaquin Phoenix's just collapsing mental state and just how much you can see Philip Seymour Hoffman's character just kind of close his his fist around those around him. I thought this was fascinating. Uh, I think this should be talked about much more often. Um, And I honestly wish I had the time to watch this through for a second time um, before we recorded today, because that would have been very helpful and really fledging out a lot of the feelings I have on it. I... This is not my favorite movie. I I am not a huge fan of this film. I think the acting in this is great. I like the cinematography in this. Um, and I like everything about this film, except for the fact that I don't think it has a point. And I think that is starkly to its detriment. Because there's, I think, and I think that really works against it because part of the convincing power of following charisma alone isn't going to bring anybody in. And I think it's, it's not fair to these roles to have that be it. Charisma gets you a long way. And I I believe in that as a major factor, which is what I like about this movie. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman does a phenomenal job of bringing everything that that act that that role possibly could have asked for except a point there's no beliefs anywhere in this film and that's a problem because cults are based on beliefs even if they're stupid ones and make no fucking sense there's still got to be something to give purpose outside of just charisma and the fact that it doesn't have that, I find to be absolutely bizarre. And I, I just quells some agree. I think it quells a lot of the engagement of it because what is there for us to pay attention to outside of the fact that Joaquin Phoenix is drawn to the charisma of this guy? There's nothing for him to question. 
outside of the power dynamic. And that's all this film has. I I just completely disagree with the idea that you need a, you know, fledged out belief system to build a foundation on for this cult. For you and I, sure. For the people that would blindly follow a charismatic cultish leader, I think you're severely overlooking what it takes to get them to follow. What's the what's been the Republican foundation the past four years just to fully bring politics into this? What do people view in the Republican Party for what is their like for what their guiding principles are? It's their charismatic leader. And it doesn't matter what their platform is. It doesn't matter what policy they're promoting or passing. It doesn't matter the words that they're saying. It's just the words that come out of their mouth, their leader's mouth, is what they're going to believe and what they're going to follow. I wholeheartedly believe you do not need anything more than a charismatic leader to get people to follow blindly. Because it doesn't matter what the words that come out of, in this case, Philip Seymour Hoffman's mouth are. If he's the one saying it, they're going to say, okay, I trust him. I believe in him. I follow him. I, I'll listen to what he has to say. I'll, I'll let him guide me. And I don't think you need anything else. You know, Joaquin Phoenix's character, you know, drunkenly has to run away from people trying to catch it out of him drunkenly stumbles onto a boat wakes up an interest and like to him Looking to back a degree that no one else had probably the best scene of the movie um i think it's an amazingly captivating scene for much the reason you just described but i think part of the reason that it's interesting is interesting is because it's one of the few times that philip seymour hoffman seems to have a point even if he's not saying what it is it seems at least he has one in that um and i'll disagree with you um about what's happening in modern politics. People united around um, the the current, for the time being, president and administration because he espoused in a charismatic way all the same vile hatred and, and terrible, loathsome opinions that they did. This guy didn't come up and say, hey, follow me. He came up and said, hey, I fucking hate Mexican people. Don't you guys hate those damn Mexican people? And then all those white dudes were like, yeah. I hate those Mexican people too. Let's build a wall. And the Trump said, yeah, let's fucking build a wall. Super high. Best wall there's ever been. He brought them in with ideas, even though they were crazy, stupid, shitty, mean ideas. He still actually presented ideas or at least spoke with some substance, if you can call it that, in contrast or in, uh, against the people whom he was running against. He made a case about how Hillary Clinton was a terrible, miserable, secret, um, I don't know, satanic person or whatever. Obvious fucking nonsense for most of it. Um, but still said something. There was still a thing there people could latch onto that wasn't just the personality. That is what is missing from this film. Even if it's fucking nonsense what he's saying, Trump at least says something that people can go, yes, I agree with that. Even if it has no standing in reality. There was substance. When? He drags him along. He shows that he can heal these people's minds. He takes them to uh, 
you know, healed this woman through hypnosis at this party, the party where, you know, the guy speaks out and it's like, but that's not substance. He he's, 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 it's a series. Joaquin Phoenix. It is. But to everybody else, it's not. We can, we can see from our own perspective that it's all smoke and mirrors. That it's, you know, fake hypnosis and there's nothing actually being done. But to Joaquin Phoenix's character, who cannot see through the smoke and mirrors, that's just him healing this woman from her mental torture. And that's what he wants. That's his hating Mexicans moment. But again, it's not because there's no actual belief system there. It's, It's science fiction. And that's not an actual set of guiding principles. It's the idea that I can, I don't know, help make you not feel a thing or feel a certain thing by asking you the right questions or putting you in a trance. And okay, that's well and good. Then do more of that in the movie and make a point out of it. They don't. That shit never comes up again. And even then, there's no, there's still, what's everyone doing at the house? Give me more of that. Why are they here? How did Philip Seymour Hoffman get them here? There's none of it. Again, he is phenomenal in this and brings every ounce of charisma that is required to be this guy that he's being. And Joaquin Phoenix does a phenomenal job of portraying a guy that is listless and and has no point or need anywhere in this world. And I get the idea for him latching on, but this film needed something for them to have a moral ambiguity about that had actual substance that this film just didn't. And it's, it's a fucking shame because I think everything around this movie is phenomenal. The problem is they didn't give you a thing for you to look at Philip Seymour Hoffman and go, this guy's reprehensible. Like it wanted you to think. Because L. Ron Hubbard is a reprehensible guy. L. Ron Hubbard used to fuck kids on boats in the water. And that is what this film needed. Something to make you feel a thing. Not literally, you know, having Philip Seymour Hoffman fuck kids, but to present a wild ideological basis that he's using to convince people for some either nefarious or true purpose. Nefarious being, hey, it's a religion. Or, or sorry, true being, hey, it's a religion. Nefarious being, give me your money to make it a religion. Um, I think it, I think it would be tough for Philip Seymour Hoffman if he had two movies of, where he fucked kids. Uh, that'd be tough. You're bringing in doubt. Yeah, yeah, uh. that'd be tough. Um, I just I wholeheartedly disagree with your with where you're coming from with this. I'll come out and say I like this better than There Will Be Blood. Oh my god, that's an insane opinion. <laughs> I think this is a better movie. I think the story is better in this than in There Will Be Blood. Tell me what the cause believes in. They believe in Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's all they need to believe in. No, they don't. <laughs> yes. That's not. It's tell me. All right, tell me what they the Republican have a Party believes. Charismatic leader that they can believe perform just the magic of healing of the mind and unlock their ability for just extended thought and extended peace internally and that's what they want that's their goal that's what they believe he can do and and that's what they think they can achieve by following him it's it's just not there for you 
You no, in bitch. in the movie, man. If oh. that's what they're, they 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 don't make a point out of any of it. Mm. I think you're wrong. I think your opinion is wrong, and you're wrong for thinking it. All right. I don't. I don't think we've ever had such a disagreement where it's just left us at at ends like this. Um, we platoon. can always agree to disagree or have that compromise in the middle. I think we're just on two polar ends right now. Platoon, we had a similar disagreement. Mm, that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, look at you just recalling that immediately. What can I say? We've we've only done like twenty of these. There's not. There hasn't been a lot of opportunities. <laughs> huh. Um. We've had twenty of these. Yeah, I don't believe you. Once again, you're wrong. I've I'm, I've never been wrong. Uh, I've never lost. I. I I just don't think it went far enough in any one way. You think it needed to go all the way? Well, no, I. Because my problem right now is I'm sitting here trying to think of scenes from this movie, and I'm having a hard time to think of scenes of things that actually mattered. I can remember the whole beginning up until, and I just watched this yesterday. Um, I can think of the whole beginning up until when um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix meet. I can think of the scene in the party that you described. I can think of the scene where he's walking back and forth. All I can think of the scene where. Rami Malek, who I totally forgot was in this movie, um, is trying to tell Philip Seymour Hoffman that Joaquin Phoenix might be like a double agent or some weird shit. Um, and I remember the ending. That's it. That's like all I got. Okay, so you just didn't pay enough attention to the movie. That's fine. No, it's because lot large portions of this film seem to be Philip Seymour Hoffman um, talking without really achieving a point and Joaquin Phoenix feeling without ever really growing as a result of it. And I think that's part of the problem in this. Whoever these two guys were at the beginning, they are those guys at the end too. Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't change as a character at all. He just moves from wherever it is they were in the beginning to England or some shit. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix just goes from being a guy that had no purpose while drunk to being a guy that had no purpose, I guess, probably still drunk, just maybe a little bit less obviously. So I, I mean, did they change? Uh, I think you're, I don't know if you're trying to look too deep or not deep enough, but I think the whole purpose is him tr searching for that purpose, thinking Philip Seymour Hoffman is able to provide that for him, and that's the whole purpose of this cult, is finding his purpose and being able to fix his, you know, his mind, his mindset, and everything involved, and not being able to because Philip Seymour Hoffman is a, a snake oil salesman because it is all smoke and mirrors and that's the whole premise of course he's he doesn't make any progress because there's no progress to be made doing what he's doing 
I'm. I think he makes no progress because they didn't think about it. I I think he makes no progress because it's not written in a way for him to do so when it should be. Based on how this movie presented what it wanted to be. See, now I just think you're being stubborn. I don't, I don't why, why can't why can't you love this movie, Josh? Because it doesn't open, have a open your heart. Because it doesn't have a point. And it's 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 I'm I'm definitely stubborn. That is absolutely true. I will fully concede that point. <laughs> <laughs> um it's absolute because because I think the reason I'm upset about this one is that I want it to. Because I love this idea. And I think it does so fucking much effectively. And there's just this one part I think it missed out on. But I think that one part's important. And I, I hate it because I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I love Walking Phoenix. Amy Adams is amazing in this. There's so much good with this. And I think it was like, you know, they were charging in for the layup and then they just don't get, they just don't take the shot. They get, they, they, they fucking mishandle the dribble and go out of bounds. And it's absolutely frustrating to watch because baseball fucking references. Now I'm watching basketball now, man, I'm doing it. (laughs) That is, that is a conversation that carried over from our other podcast. Juicing the numbers. Um, yeah, it's because I don't... If this was a different movie, I would be fully dismissing this. Um, as this is a bad movie, and I'm not going to argue about different it. Movie. Um, be a different conversation. But, no, but, but you know what I'm saying? My, my point being is that if this was done worse, I wouldn't care as much. I would fully be writing this off. The way that I largely wrote off Platoon. <laughs> but... Um, I think this is really fucking well done. I think this is really well done. I have one complaint though, and that's just that's just where it is. That's fine. That's fine. Listen, we're not all gonna like the same movies. We know this. No, Cor, we are in fact different past. people. Yeah, who would have thought? Um, yeah, this is just one of those cases. We do have incredibly similar. Uh, opinions on a lot of films or at least interest in certain films i know there's a certain term that i am completely forgetting but it is what it is um taste we have very similar taste in films but this will be the one exception other than Platoon. it is remarkable how often we agree on these types of things yeah um yeah we are different people but all right. Um, do you have any other points uh, before we move into final rating and review? Um, not necessarily. I really thought that the lead up with how like sexually deprived and craved Joaquin Phoenix is he was going to do something really terrible to a- Amy Adams when he like snapped at one point. And boy, I'm really glad he didn't because that would have been a very, very difficult scene to watch. Yes. Oh. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've made my piece. All right. Well, this was your film. So you start. I think this is, 
this in Kane of Paul Thomas Sanderson, the greatest film ever made. No, but in all seriousness, it's a tremendously shot film, uh, tremendously a deceptively well written film. Um, that you know, in my opinion, I think the story is is excellent. I, I think it all works out, um, and I think it's underappreciated. I highly recommend this. Uh, I, I'd have to go th- back and look through the Paul Thomas Anderson catalog to really give this a proper ranking. Um, but again, I will say I do like this better than There Will Be Blood. Grand, I've always been under the opinion that you know I've liked that you know There Will Be Blood less than the consensus. That's something we talked about when we reviewed that movie. Um, that. So I think I'm going to give it four and a half. I really, really like this. Wow. All yeah. right. Arguably um, just as much, if not more, than Fargo. Uh-huh. Suck a dick. Um, I will. I I really like this movie. I, I as I said in like my, the closing of my rambling <laughs> just prior to this little segment, um, I think it does a lot that works really well. I think this is an acting clinic um, and will keep you engaged in that way, even though I find the story to be hard to retain interest in as the movie carries on. And that over two hours, about two hours and 15 minutes or so, um, I found it to be challenging to stay fully engaged in it. Um, I'm going to give this... (sighs) I've been waffling between two and a half and three. Um, mm. I'll go. I'll. I'll. My. My heart says two and a half. My mind says three. I'll go three. Um, because I don't think you're. I don't think you're. 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 You're ruining your day if you watch it. Um, and depending on the reason you're coming to me for a recommendation, I might still recommend this. Um, but I wouldn't say to go out of your way to watch it. Um, it's on Netflix. If you're looking for an easy two hour or a thing, a, a thing, a stylized thing to do for two hours, this is a great stylized thing. One of the last um, big acting performances from Philip Seymour Hoffman before his death. This is a, an interesting mm-hmm. film for sure, but ah, me too. Um, but yeah, I'll go three. Okay. Um, and that brings us, thank you very much. Uh, that brings <laughs> us into next week's picks. So again, before we get into it, um, we're going to be taking turns as to um, what films we pick in regards to the Oscars. So this week, Corwin's got a pick that we are pro- that is projected to get an Oscar nomination for the quote-unquote projected Oscar nominations. We are using Variety, um, the Variety's website, to determine that to help us out in figuring out which films are likely to get a little bit of love. Um, from the Academy this season. So if you want to check out the full scope of picks or uh, films that we'll probably be going through in the next several weeks slash months, definitely check out Variety. I'm sure you know. <laughs> if you're listening to this, you almost certainly know who they are instead of who we are. Um, but that is going to be the basis for us. So uh, that being said, Corwin, um, give me your pick for next week. Uh, mine is a movie that I was wildly excited to see in theaters this year before the total collapse of the modern world. Um, 
in Tenet, Christopher Nolan's most recent film. I may have to watch this three or four times this week to really understand it and be able to talk about it. So far as I've heard from almost everyone else in the world who's seen uh, it. I don't know. I heard that shit about, um, what's that one with Leo DiCaprio? All of them? No, the the, the, the Christopher Nolan Leo DiCaprio movie. Oh, Inception? Yeah, I heard that about Inception and then was, I actually hated Inception for like years after it came out. Because everyone I fucking talked to beforehand was like, it's going to make you question your own reality, bro. I had to watch it three times. And then it's just a very straightforward movie. So yeah, I, I, was, I was not confused by that movie. No, no, it's it's very straightforward. <laughs> so I have a very side eye opinion when people start talking about how complex Christopher Nolan films are. Not that they're like basic bitch films, but because I think they attract a certain person who maybe gets more confused by straightforward plots than your average person. So we'll see. I, I'm skeptical. Touche. Yeah, I might just watch it three times because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Now that I can get behind. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so that's Tenant. Tenant. All right, that also, if you're checking out Variety's page, that is under the likely nominations for Best Cinematography, which also makes a lot of sense for Christopher Nolan films. They are always beautifully shot. Um, I'm also very much looking forward yeah, to this pick. I mean, if he puts out a movie, you can almost just write that in pen for being nominated for Best Cinematography. I mean, seriously, and it doesn't. That's a, that's the thing with Christopher Nolan films is that it almost doesn't even matter what the fuck they're about. Um, I have no idea what Tenet's about. Uh, I I didn't know what was the one he just came out with about um, World War II last Dunkirk. year. Dunkirk. I didn't know what the fuck Dunkirk was about when I saw that in theaters. I I don't even fucking look anymore because I know it's going to be a a beautiful watch and b probably still really fucking good no matter what. <laughs> He's he has my blind trust. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's a, a top three director for me. I love him so much. I can't say I've ever seen a movie of his that I didn't like to some degree. Um, Memento is probably the closest I've come to not enjoying something. And Oh, I really? really think, I love Memento. I think I watched that too early in my mental development to understand it because I just don't get that movie. Oh, my friend, um, there are there are many yeah. films like this over the course of our lifetime. I understand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, love Christopher Nolan. Really, uh, really have high hopes for this, even though, again, I know it's about time and that's it. But I do still have high hopes because it's Christopher Nolan. So what's your pick? Uh, I'm going to go with a movie that I have not seen. Um, I'm going with a uh, what is supposed to be a classic foreign film um from france 1960 eyes without a face that's just a jar <clears throat> eyes without a face okay that sounds disturbing and i'm all for it yep i want to get let's get weird i don't know what it's about i don't know anything i'm going into it blind just like eyes face without an eyes but this is eyes without a face um <laughs> so anyway those are the picks uh we got 2020s tenant um 1960s eyes without a face uh, we're gearing up for the oscars so expect a lot more recent films coming up there's um several films that are expected to be nominated that have not technically been released yet so we're going to try to be as efficient as we can with um 
finding ways to watch those as soon as they become available to us to watch. So we'll keep you guys posted with what those are. Stay tuned. We're really excited for it. We just spent a whole afternoon planning this out, um, our little schedule for it. So stick with it. Um, but those are our films for next week. Tenet, Eyes Without a Face. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And uh, until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. From Paul. Bye.